So we're starting our new series, Shiro's, and I'm very excited about it. You know, we write these series months in advance, and generally what happens is God blesses us on the week that it starts with stuff that's absolutely germane to what we're talking about. And it happened again this week. So I'm super humbled and super thankful over having good material. The first was the remake of Little Mermaid. Now, when I talk about Little Mermaid, I will acknowledge I'm always the least popular person in the room. I can't stand the movie Little Mermaid. It's evil. It was bad the first time, so I have no idea why they would even remake it. Now, I want you to like me, so I'll keep it brief. I could fill the hour with my feelings about the Little Mermaid. But at the end of the day, it's a story about a female who gives up her voice, and it's taken women 2,000 years to get a voice in society. It's about a female who gives up her voice so she can get a pair of legs to land a prince. I'm not wrong. That is what that movie is about. There's a horrible scene in that movie about not having a voice, trying to get a kiss, and the whole concept of consent. That movie is evil. And every time I talk about it, I seem to be the most feminist voice in the room. And everybody's like, oh, but they're cute, and the music's snappy. Yes, that makes it more insidiously evil. Because how you can't whitewash misogyny with cuteness. I'll leave it there. Because I want you to like me. But then what happened this week also was what the Southern Baptist Conference did. Now the Southern Baptist Conference is a denomination like our Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, but it's way bigger. And they had their business meeting in Orlando. Representatives of every single one of their congregations came, some 19,000 people arrived in Orlando to have a business meeting. One of the items on the agenda was the potential for reinstating two congregations that had been tossed out. One of the congregations was a medium-sized congregation. The other was one of their largest, a giant megachurch in California called Saddleback. Saddleback is pastored by Rick Warren, who you may know as the purpose-driven life guy. He's a hero to the Southern Baptists. His congregation was tossed out. He asked, he begged, he even pleaded to be allowed back in. And they told him no. They told him no. And they voted to maintain him being out and the other congregation for one reason and one reason only, because they have women pastors. Now that in and of itself was upsetting to me. But then I became rather infuriated I mean, I don't get hellfire and brimstone very often, but I'm really mad about this. Because what that body did, that 19,000 people, what they did was they doubled down. They actually proposed a secondary amendment, which passed to exclude any congregation that has women leaders at any level. So any congregation that has 
Women who've been elected to their leadership board, they are also at risk of being thrown out of the Southern Baptist Convention. And right now, as it stands, it's about another 2,000 congregations that they're going to lose in a denomination that has lost a bunch of people recently. They doubled down. And that made me so incredibly angry. Now, the ELCA started our, well, actually, I watched some of the highlights of this. And as I watched the highlights, there was one woman who came to the microphone that I heard speak, and she said these words that I thought completely encapsulated the entire argument. This is what she said. She expects the Southern Baptist Convention to, quote, shut the door to feminism and liberalism. Now, right there, I want to pause and say, like, why is she lumping those two things to be the same thing? I know a lot of very strong women who are conservatives, and so to make those two things the same isn't right, number one. Number two, we should leave no room for our daughters and granddaughters, she said, in the generations ahead to have confusion on where the SBC stands. That's right. Your children, your daughters and granddaughters will have no confusion. They will learn that the church tells them they have no voice. They will learn that the church is telling them that God believes they have no voice. So there won't be confusion. And that angers me. It infuriates me. Because it's not true. And it's not biblically accurate. And the reason why it makes me so angry is because I don't believe that our God wishes that for the women of our society. God has always uplifted and upheld women. And to teach that not to be the case is wrong and sinful in my opinion. Now the ELCA started ordaining women 53 years ago, and that was awesome. I mean, we have, um, we have and have had amazing women who are pastors at Sheridan. We have elected amazing women to our congregational council. We've had, um, as, since I've been senior pastor, we've had an equal number of women and um, men as president of our congregation at Sheridan. Currently, our staff is two-thirds women. I think that it's terribly important for us to recognize the importance of women in Sheridan's ministry. We have a lot to be proud of when it comes to the women in our uh, ministry here at Sheridan. I think we should recognize that. And 50 years ago, that didn't much matter. You see, if in a church society, people could sit there and say, you know, well, I understand that these people ordain women and that these people don't. I understand that this church does this. Everybody understood and related to. When it was a church 
society, people could make their choice. That was then, this is now. You know what's happening now with this double down against women in society? We're already losing, and it only makes it worse. What's the largest growing segment of our religious population? Anybody know what it is? It's the nuns. As a reminder, the nuns. See, they're the ones who, when you ask them what's your religious affiliation, they say none. The nuns are the fastest growing religious group in society. And so when folks are churched, they can go, well, they do this and they do, oh, those Baptists, you know, they don't, they, they, but the Lutheran, ha- half of the Lutherans um, get me as a woman. But in today's society, when the Southern Baptists did what they did last week, everybody, especially our young people, say, talk to the hand. You don't get me. You don't get it. They don't any longer distinguish between Christians. And when the Southern Baptists did what they did last week and young people read that news story, they look at all of us and say, y'all don't get it. You don't get me, you don't get it. That church is some old-fashioned, antiquated enterprise that doesn't apply. And so what infuriates me is that this whole thing that happened last week with the Southern Baptists We can't look at it and say, oh, that doesn't apply to us. It makes my life harder. It makes us all look bad. It hurts us all. Because people aren't discerning enough anymore to understand the difference between a Lutheran and a Baptist. My theology professor is a guy named Phil Hefner. It's a picture of Phil. Phil uh, has died and gone to heaven. He was... uh, Super complicated individual and not always the best person, but he was a tremendous theologian. And when he taught theology, he taught us about the apostolic chunk. And what that meant was, (laughs) he said that the entire Christian enterprise boils down to the apostolic chunk. There's this missing piece. It all is about faith. The whole thing rests on faith. We can't prove anything. And so when Jesus died and rose from the dead, we have no proof. All we have is the apostolic chunk. We have a couple of people who saw, and then they talked about it, and then 30 years later it was written down. So we have a witness and a scant witness at that. All we have is faith in this story. It's as if God wanted to make it hard, to make it challenging, to make it be an enterprise on faith. And so, to do that, who are the first people he placed at the empty tomb? Women. God chose women to be the first at the empty tomb. The whole Christian enterprise comes down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, him emerging from that empty tomb, and who are the first ones to see? Women. There's a reason for that. 
because the whole thing is about faith. And you are going to then get the people who have no voice, no credibility, the least likely to be believed, so it has to be then based on faith. So when we look at the Bible, as the Southern Baptists do, and say, oh, there are all kinds of words about men being in leadership. Yes, there were words always one step ahead, progressing one step ahead of a very patriarchal society, pushing those envelopes based on that society, not meeting the standards of what we have today because we've evolved. Yes, there are those words. But you're missing the point. The point is that God always has chosen women to lead. God has always valued the voice of women, and that's why God put women at the empty tomb. The most critical of moments is that God trusted women and their voices to lead. And we've forgotten that. And we've missed that. And we need to remedy that. That's why we're talking about Shiro's. That's why we're doing what we're doing in this worship series. Because we don't want our daughters and granddaughters to be confused. We want to hear, we want them to hear that God has always uplifted their voice in their faith, that God has always called them to lead. That's important that we get that message known in the face of what is today a horribly con, uh, contrary message to that. So we're gonna be talking about women in the Bible. The first woman that we're gonna be talking about is Mary, the mother of our Lord. And we have the text from the wedding in Cana. This text has always been looked at through the course of his story. Um, biblical scholars have usually interpreted it very harshly. It's kind of men in charge interpreted as men in charge. And so what happens is, um, you know, they're at a party and basically um, in verse three, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is not a conviction, this is not an order, this is, she's just giving them facts, they're out of wine. Jesus says, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? It's not a rebuke, it's not a scold. Oftentimes, biblical scholars have said that it is, it's not. He's like, yeah, what's up with that? And then, he says, my arrow has not yet come. Yeah, that's not a rebuke and scold. Essentially, the way I read it, it's kinda like, ma, it's a wedding. Like, it's my day off. They're out of wine. I don't wanna to run to Sam's. It's my day off, right? So there's, there, there's no fight here. And he had not yet started his public ministry, so my hour has not yet come yet. Like, my first day of work is tomorrow. Can I at least just have this wedding tonight? The most important line in the text, however, is that uh, she doesn't respond to him. She just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's it. She doesn't argue, she doesn't fight, she doesn't respond to his rebuke when it's really just more banter. And the banter is not even the important part. The important part is she believes that he will do it. And, and it might be a stretch, although I'm not quite sure. 
She believes in him more than he believes in himself. He's got this. Isn't that what the strong women in our lives do for us? Isn't that one of the characteristics of being a Shiro? Believing in ours more than they believe in themselves? I would ask you to reflect on who in your life blessed you along the way, believed in you more than you believed in yourself. And I would be willing to guess that for most of you, it would be a mother figure, a Shiro, who encouraged you more. That's what they do. The historical figure that we're talking about today is Susanna Wesley, widely called the founder of the United Methodist Movement or Methodism. Um, she was married to a guy, Samuel. He was a pastor. He was very outspoken, fiery, wasn't very good at what he did, didn't get along with his parishioners. Um, she was also outspoken and fiery, and this was in the late 16, early 1700s. And so they butted heads a lot. Um, he wasn't terribly good at what he did, and he, they, they wound up getting dropped off in a field in rural England. Ugh. So they worked together, and it wasn't going really well. He was not great at his job. They fought a lot. He fought with his parishioners. He was very outspoken about politics. There was one instance where he was outspoken for one candidate, and she actually came out and was outspoken for a different candidate, and... Um, and so he got really mad at her, and then her candidate won. He got so mad that he packed up and he went to London for two months because he was embarrassed and angry with his wife, embarrassed over that loss. And while she was there, just to show you how strong she was, since there was no church because he was gone, she started holding little services in her kitchen called Kitchen Church, and she drew, she drew more people than he did. That really made him mad, right? So she was just this terribly strong leader. She birthed 19 children, and she was able to raise 10 of them to adulthood. So she knew hard times. One of her children, John Wesley, had gifts for ministry. She saw that and encouraged him to go to seminary. His father, who was bad at his job, tried to dissuade his son from going to seminary. Susanna wouldn't be denied. John went to seminary and became one of the most famous pastors in the history of the world, becoming John Wesley, founding the United Methodist Movement, which is now the United Methodist denomination as we know it in the United States. She believed in her son more than her husband did, for sure, but actually even more than he believed in himself. That's one of the things that Shiro's do. Who in your life has believed in you more than you believed in yourself? And can you, do you dare to believe in someone else more than they believe in themselves? Because no matter what your gender is, if you can do that, you can also be a Shiro in someone else's life. I pray it be so. Amen.